Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road Church in Guildford, UK. Thank you for joining us on the journey, wherever you are in the world. You can find out more about who we are and what we're up to at EmmausRoad.com. Where it started in this town of Barrio, uh, everybody was revived in the whole town except one couple. Uh, and so the Muslim police, the Muslim government withdrew all police because they were redundant now. Uh, and all law courts were closed for four years uh, because there was no more crime. Can you imagine that happening? <laughs> In Britain. <laughs> and the, the spirit of holiness really worked. And there was tremendous spirit of repentance and then evangelism breaking out. Uh, I noticed it even before I got there. I was asked to do some Bible teaching in it because what we've noticed is that revivals are wonderful when they come. But if they're not well grounded in solid biblical teaching, they die yeah, and We've noticed in various areas that where there has been revival without quality biblical teaching, then uh, that area may become harder and darker than any other place. You can see it today in, you know, we had the Welsh revival uh, in the valleys of southern Wales. And you go there now, it's dark and difficult spiritually. Uh, I, because there was inadequate biblical teaching in the revival. Uh, I, so I was asked to go out and do some teaching there. Uh, and I had to fly towards this place. Uh, and I sat next to a hard-bitten-looking oil man from New Zealand in the oil industry. Uh, and uh, he asked me where I was going. And I said I was going to Barrio, where this revival broke out. And his whole face changed uh, and shone. Uh, and uh, he said, oh, you lucky man. And then he said, what are you doing there? And I said, well, I'm going to do some Bible teaching. And he said, oh, he says, wonderful. I became a Christian there. <laughs> and then he told me his story. Totally non-religious, you know, never went to a church or anything like that. Uh, uh, and he went up to this place in the Highlands for a holiday, stayed in a government rest house there. And his first morning on holiday, the caretaker woke him up just before five o'clock and told him it was time for the prayer meeting. <laughs> Which was not quite his scene. <laughs> and he thought, said to the caretaker, oh, no, that's not for me, you know, I'm on holiday and I don't go to that sort of thing. And the caretaker said, oh, excuse me, sir, uh, everybody here goes to the prayer meeting and you'll be expected. Uh, and the caretaker absolutely insisted and got this guy up and he told me this on the plane. He said, I, you know, I went along to this prayer meeting all grumpy and... You know, what am I doing five o'clock in the morning on holiday? <laughs> and then he said, when I got there, I couldn't understand a word because it was in their local language. 
But he, he said, just the looks on their faces as they worshipped and prayed together and the spirit of repentance and crying out to the Lord. Just amazing, he said. And I was converted in the prayer meeting. <laughs> That's brilliant. We could listen to his stories all night, couldn't we? Um, and so, Martin, we'd love to hear what you've got to, to speak to us about tonight. Elizabeth, thank you so much for coming up um, as well. Um, you can talk more to them afterwards for a little bit. Um, but for now, um, let's, um, let's leave you in peace to, to, to speak. Great to be with you. Uh, sorry there's no revival in Guildford. <laughs> Pray for it. Yes, and work for it. We notice that revivals are always preceded by a massive movement of evangelism. Now, I'm not saying a massive movement of evangelism always leads to revival, but I'm saying that all revivals start with tremendous spirit of evangelism. And then when you get the revival, the evangelism takes off even more. <laughs> so get into evangelism in a big way. Uh, let me just mention three books before we get to the subject. Uh, Many of you are younger. <laughs> Excuse the old man speaking here. Uh, and we face big decisions in life, don't we? And what direction your life is going to go into. And what are you going to do for the Lord? This sort of question. And I hope this very practical, biblical book, Choices, will be a real help to you. Quite small but I hope you'll find it helpful. I mentioned just now different cultures, because I come from a different culture. And you may have noticed I communicate slightly differently from most British people. <laughs> yes, uh, because I'm Jewish. And we Jews, we may look very white and English and uh, that sort of thing, but actually we're very definitely a different culture. And that's one of our problems in coming into the Christian church. Because the churches are very British. <laughs> so they should be. Because they're relating on the whole to British people. So they should be very British. It's not a criticism. In fact, it's a word of praise. But it has difficulties for those of us who come from other cultures because actually we think in a different way and we communicate in a different way and uh, life is different. So communicating across cultures, good news in other cultures. And of course in Britain today, we are facing a situation of a vast range of cultures, aren't we? Uh, people of every nation and people here in Britain 
And I sometimes say, you know, when I visit our grandchildren, that is cross-cultural communication. <laughs> so you can have sympathy on our grandchildren. Some of you know Roger Ellis, and Roger and Maggie Ellis, and Ruth Valerio, and yeah, there are our children. For those of you who are more serious about Christian mission overseas and cross-cultural mission generally, let me recommend, this is a, a more serious, bigger book, uh, but uh, get a grip on mission. I hope you'll find that helpful. Because we are facing a lot of questions in mission today. Well, I mentioned that I was Jewish. So was Jesus, of course. Mm -hmm. Amazing. You always thought Jesus was British, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, you worshipped as if you did. <laughs> yeah. Because, as I said, things are very British. And so they should be. Jesus was very Jewish. The apostles were all Jews. The early church, the first churches, were almost 100% Jewish. Not quite, but almost. And we Jews wrote the Bible. It's a Jewish book. And you can re only really understand it properly if you get into our way of thinking because it communicates in our way. Yes? Now, the danger in the early church in the time of the New Testament was precisely this, that actually people thought of Jesus as coming for Israel being the Jewish Messiah for the Jewish people. <laughs> and then they thought, well, we could allow a few Gentiles coming in to our Jewish churches if they become good Jews, but not if they remain foreign. Mm -hmm. And they were called God-fearers or proselytes. And there were a few of those. And then increasing numbers, actually, later. But this was the, the battle of the early church, the first churches. Is the Christian faith really for everybody? Is it allowable to have a British church? Or a German church, or a, any other church? Or is it just... Is Christianity just a sect of Judaism? That was the danger. And the New Testament is showing over and over and over and over again, it's the basic message of much of the New Testament, that actually Jesus has come for all peoples, not just Jews, that he's universal the universal Lord, the universal Savior, the universal Messiah. Yes? 
Now, that's a, a problem for us in Britain too, isn't it? That, you know, we have our way of doing the church. Nice British way. We don't think of it as British. We think of it as spirit-led. <laughs> and it is spirit-led, but British. And then we export it. Our styles of leadership, which are totally unbiblical. But they suit Britain and British culture. So they're good here. But don't export them. And the same is true of much of our Christian faith. That it's, it's right in Britain. And it's good. And spirit-led and spirit-filled, etc., etc. But don't export it just comme ça. Yeah? And what is the good news of Jesus? Yeah. Oh, we say, well, this is the gospel. I know the gospel. Do you? What makes Jesus good news? I was asked to do a, a mission weekend in a church in East Malaysia, large church, yeah, and uh, quite a few hundred people, uh, and Chinese, largely. And uh, they had realized that the church in Malaysia was founded by British missionaries, and it was built up by British missionaries. So the church in Malaysia owed a great deal, and owes present tense, a great deal to the British church, historically. But now they realize that the church in Malaysia is flourishing and large, and the church in Britain is struggling. And we're a tiny minority in our country, and not very significant in government and that sort of thing, and in basic British culture. And they feel that they can repay the debt that they owe to Britain by doing some mission in Britain, this Chinese church. Amen. So they were having a mission weekend on mission to Britain. And they asked me to be the speaker. And one of the talks they asked me to speak on, I felt was very significant one, very helpful one. They asked me to speak on what makes the gospel good news to contemporary British. It's a good question, isn't it? In one way, is Jesus actually meeting the needs, the felt needs, the, the needs that people feel? What makes Jesus good news in Britain today? Well, we could have 27 sermons on that, so I won't attempt to answer it. But I'd throw it out to you. Yeah? What makes Jesus good news? The gospel, of course. Gospel means good news, doesn't it? So what makes the gospel good news for British today? Well, let me just give a, a little incident that happened 
when I was first a missionary in Asia, long, 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 long time ago. And uh, I was asked to work among Muslims in Singapore. And uh, totally pioneer. There was no church or anything of that sort. Uh, there were Chinese churches and that sort of thing. But there were no ex-Muslim churches at all. Uh, and virtually no Muslim converts at that time. A few, but, well, there were nine in the whole country. Uh, and... Uh, I got to know some Muslim leaders in Singapore. I happened to meet them and got to know them. And very kindly they said to me, come round to our headquarters anytime and you can, you're new to Islam, you can ask us anything you like about Islam and we'll try and help you to understand. That was kind. I think they thought that they might persuade me to become a Muslim. But just in case you're worried, I haven't done yet. <laughs> And never shall, <laughs> quickly. <laughs> but um, I went round there one day. And when I got to the headquarters, there were about a dozen or 15 of these Muslim men leaders seated around a big table. And uh, they were all shouting at the top of their voices and banging the table. They were angry, really angry. And they were denouncing a sort of sect of Islam called the Ahmadiyya. Don't worry about the Ahmadiyyas now. Yeah, uh, but uh, actually the mosque in Woking, the big mosque, which was the first mosque in Britain, used to be an Ahmadiyya mosque. It's not now, but it was. So they were the first Muslims in this country. But it's a sect of Islam, like we feel about the Jehovah's Witnesses or something. And they were angry with this movement and banging the table. And when I got there, the leader said, go and sit in the corner over there. We're busy at the moment. He said it in that sort of tone of voice. And then when we're free, we'll call you to the table. Well, after a while, they cooled down a bit and invited me to come and sit at the table with them. And rather gruffly, the leader said, you know, just ask us any question you want about Islam. Well, what on earth do you ask in that sort of context? You know? So I said, well, I, I noticed you were rather angry with the Ahmadiyyas. Uh, please excuse my ignorance. Notice, sign of humility, hand on the breast. Uh, uh, but can you tell me why you're angry? Well, they all started shouting again, banging the table and so on, and, and uh, denouncing these Ahmadiyya people. Uh, and um, after a while, the leader shouted over the top of everybody else, they're heretics, that's why. False teaching. Sorry. Tremendous spiritual gift of discernment. I had noticed they thought that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I said, well, yes, I, I see that. Uh, please excuse my ignorance. I'm new to Islam. Can you explain to me in what way their teaching is false? And very angrily, in a loud voice, he said to me, when they eat watermelon, 
they spit their pips straight on the floor. They are heretics. <laughs> well, I thought of all the sermons I'd had back home, you know, and not many of them told me how to spit out my watermelon pips. Now, I'm sure that in your church, your teaching is really relevant, uh, and you get teaching on that regularly. But my church didn't have that. But that was really important to them. Why was it important? Now, is our gospel, I ask myself then, is my gospel relevant to the questions they are asking? Mm -hmm. Now, it may be that what is important to them may not be totally relevant to me, but that's not my point. My point is, is my gospel relevant to them? Well, I'll leave you to work it out. That's mission. That our gospel answers their questions and their needs. It's relevant to them. Not just to me, what I think is important and what I want to tell them and so on. You know? Well, this evening, I wanted just to share with you one very well-known little passage of Scripture, which is almost hackneyed, and I'm sorry about that. But I want us to look at it. And it comes right at the end of Matthew's gospel. Matthew, of course, was Jewish. He was very Jewish. And Matthew's gospel is very Jewish. Which is why it rather suits Muslims. Because Muslims come from Muhammad. Muhammad was an Arab. And the Arabs are Semitic, ethnically. And we Jews are Semitic, ethnically. And so Jews and Arabs have a lot in common, culturally and religiously in many ways. So what suits them suits us. What suits us suits them, and generally speaking. And Matthew's Gospel suits Muslims very well because it starts... How does Matthew's Gospel start? What does it start with? Yes, the genealogy. Jesus, the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of. And most Europeans skip it and feel, think that's so boring. <laughs> True? I gave a, a New Testament to a Muslim leader in the south of Thailand. And after two or three weeks, I went to his house. And I asked him how he was getting on with this book. And very seriously he said to me, this book has the ring of truth about it. Well, I agreed with him, actually. <laughs> I said, yes, I, I feel that too. Well, what gives you that impression? And very seriously he said to me, the genealogy at the beginning 
shows this is truth. No European would have given me that answer, would they? You see? It's not European at all, is it? But actually, when you know people's parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and family and where they come from, you know a lot about the person. And the genealogy is very, very important for us as Jews. If this were a Jewish meeting, I would have started in a totally different way. <laughs> I would start by telling you all the rabbis that I don't have in my background. <laughs> but then I would have begun to tell you all the well-known Jewish names that I do have in my background so that people would understand who I am. Yeah? What my background is shows who I am. Even if I react against some of that, it's still reacting against and therefore influenced by, isn't it? <laughs> so the genealogy shows you who Jesus is. What sort of guy is he? Is he worth trusting? <laughs> well, Matthew ends with these very well-known verses. And I'd like just to read them to you. Matthew 28, 16 to 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee. Now, Galilee, of course, was an area where a lot of Gentiles lived as well as Jews. So it was very mixed. So Galilee is a very significant place in the mission of God's church, in the early church there in the New Testament, because it's not just Jewish. <laughs> it's mixed. So they went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. That's interesting, isn't it? That actually these verses are coming to people who, who see Jesus. Wonderful. But at the same time, they've got very real doubts. So as we talk about mission, if you're feeling, whoa, I'm inadequate and having some doubts there. That's great. <laughs> I rejoice. Because that's the background uh, of this call to mission. So, but some doubted. And Jesus came to them and said, verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus comes with all authority. Therefore, because Jesus has authority, therefore go, don't stay, go. And uh, it doesn't say, of course, how far you go, whether you go to the next house, your neighbor, or the person in the desk next to you at work, or whether you go to Timbuktu. But go, we must. So go to where people are. Go and make disciples of all nations. Not just Israel, not just your own Jewish people, but more widely, all nations. And uh, Jesus himself had opened the door for that. 
enjoying his ministry because he didn't only go to Jews. He went particularly to the Samaritans. And the Samaritans were a sort of halfway house, a bridge towards the Gentiles. So when you hear or read about the Samaritans, always realize this is widening the whole concept of the kingdom of God. This is widening the horizons for the church of God. Uh, and it should widen our horizons too. The Samaritans were a mixed race, the result of mixed marriages, half Jewish and half Gentile. And... Uh, they were. They were partly Jewish in their way of behavior and so on. For example, they, they followed the first five books of the Old Testament, the five books of Moses, but they didn't believe in the rest of the Old Testament. Uh, and they had a temple, like the temple in Jerusalem, where they worshipped uh, in their temple, but it wasn't the temple of Jerusalem. It was a temple in Samaria. And their temple was a bit like the Jerusalem temple, but it, was, it also had sort of pagan influence in it. So they were half Jewish and half pagan at the same time. But because of the half Jewish, they, they relate a bit to the Jewish people. And it's a little bit easier for a Jew to go to a Samaritan than to go the whole hog and reach right out to the people who are so different, the Gentiles, people like you. <laughs> That's amazing, isn't it? Uh, so Jesus emphasizes the Samaritans in the New Testament, doesn't he? You know, he tells the story of the good Samaritan. That's a shocking story from a Jewish point of view. Yeah? So one of them get the feeling, helped one of us in need. You know, we help our own, thank you. <laughs> we don't need help from them. Uh, we could help them, perhaps. Yeah? Christian mission, we'll go and help the poor people overseas. <laughs> but don't let them think that they could come and help us. We know how to do it here. shocking story, Good Samaritan. And Jesus revealed himself more intimately and more clearly to the woman of Samaria than to anybody else in the New Testament. To nobody else does he say, I am he, I am the Messiah. But he does to that woman of Samaria. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, so Jesus opens the door. He heals ten lepers. And only one comes back to say thank you. And the punchline of the story, and he was a Samaritan. Yes. They were the goodies. <laughs> and the Jews were a bit the baddies. <laughs> yeah. Opening the door for wider mission. Well... Go and make disciples, learners, people who learn. This is what disciples means. It's not, not just people that follow. It is that. But it's also people who are learning. And sisters and brothers, this is our challenge for ourselves to be disciples, 
be people with a big L plate on our lives and learners and growing. And then, of course, to help others to learn at the feet of Jesus. And I want to ask you how you're getting on with your biblical study. I want to ask you, are you learning more on prayer? Are you learning more uh, on following Jesus in holiness and righteousness? How are you doing in that learning? Because the task of mission is to make disciples, make learners of all nations and to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The outward sign of our Christian faith. And the outward marks of our Christian faith are enormously important. Just what we do. Little things will speak. How we walk. How we talk. How we do everything. How we eat. They will reveal something of our background and character. And in different cultures, different things will speak in different ways. How do you walk? Very upright. Your arms swinging, you know. Looks a bit proud in many countries. With your fist closed? What does that mean in another culture? Or do you walk with your fingers apart? Lots of little things that uh, are meaningful in another culture. Well, baptizing them and just the form of the church. You know, frankly, what is in the center of your church? Now, some churches will have a big pulpit there because they want to emphasize the word of the Lord and the Bible. Some will have a communion table. Because they're wanting to emphasize the presence of the Lord with them in in the Lord's Supper. Some will have a music band, like yours, because they want to emphasize worship as the center of your church. So actually just the structure of the church will speak to people as they come in. And we have to be aware of what we're saying. Uh, in Islam, before, before prayer starts, the leader will look around and check that there are no empty places between men. And the tradition is that if there's an empty place, a gap between two men, then an evil spirit will come there. Now, go to our churches, and there are empty places, you know, between two men here, or between two of us in different places. Now, happily tonight, we're quite full, so uh, there are not too many empty places, which is good from a Muslim point of view, uh, uh, but there are one or two. Uh, um, Now, a Muslim coming in would think immediately, oh, evil spirits. (laughs) which might not actually be what we want to communicate. (laughs) Now, 
I notice in churches in Britain that people are very shy to sit in the front rows. Well done. Uh, and they love the back rows. Now, in Latin America, you see, in the Pentecostal churches, everybody wants the front rows because the miracles happen in the front. So you want to be in the front to see the miracles. Ah. People in the back can't see what's going on. Now, we don't expect miracles in our churches. So we don't want to sit in the front. Is that what's, what is, what does it mean? Do you see what I'm saying? Little things actually speak. They may not actually say what you want to communicate with it. And people may actually read the situation wrongly. It may actually be shyness. And, you know, I don't want to be seen, I want to be in the back, you know. <laughs> uh, there may be all sorts of reasons why we don't want to sit in the front. But I just give one, that a Pentecostal from Latin America would feel immediately. We communicate in different ways. Well, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them, these external things they actually speak, and teaching them to observe everything that I commanded you, to teach them. And the churches in many parts of the world are desperate for teaching. Just to give an example or two, when we went to Indonesia, it was a mass movement situation. You weren't allowed to be baptized in the church uh, as a new convert unless there were at least 25 of you in the group because we didn't have time to baptize peanuts little groups of 10 and 15 converts. Uh, and when I left, the man who took over from me, when he heard me saying that, he said, do you mean you went to baptisms with just 25 converts? I said, yes, sometimes. He said, he'd, I've never been to a baptism of less than 100 converts, and often in the thousands. Uh, but teaching, who's going to teach them all? If I just give the statistics of the churches we worked with there. When we went there, there were 20,000 members. When we left two and a half years later, there were 25,000, 20,000, 25,000. But new patterns of evangelism had been started. Uh, and uh, the next four years, the church grew from 25,000 to 80,000. Today, they number around one and a half million. 20,000, 25,000, 80,000. One and a half million. Mm -hmm. And one can say, hallelujah, well, that's wonderful, you know, praise the Lord. We wouldn't mind one and a half million in our church either. Well, they might have difficulty finding a seat, but, <laughs> but one and a half million would be, you know, good. But actually, it presents problems, doesn't it? Who's going to teach them all? They're not from a Christian background. 
They're going to need a lot of teaching. They do need a lot of teaching. And, of course, you need masses more children's workers and youth workers and women's workers and men's workers and worship leaders, etc., 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 etc. And you may not have them. <laughs> when we went to these churches, we found in the church just around the corner from us with a thousand adults. Uh, it had a, a children's group of 400 children between the ages of 5 and 12, led by one person on their own. No music, no modern translation of the Bible, no Sunday school teaching aids, nothing in the way of visual aids, not even a blackboard, you know, for goodness sake. Uh, 400 kids. How would you like to teach that every Sunday? Yeah. Well, Elizabeth quickly got uh, 20 or so young adults and gave them a short course on teaching a Sunday school with radical new ideas like dividing children's meetings into smaller, smaller groups and you know, using a blackboard for, you know, drawing pin men or something, you know, and having an, an aim in your teaching and so on. And, uh, and a little bit of singing, perhaps. And new ideas for them. They were new. They may not sound radical to you, but radical they were in that context. And it changed the whole situation. Suddenly, instead of one teacher, they had 21. And so their individual classes were only 20 or so children. Well, no, they weren't. Because when, when it got more interesting and more exciting and more everything, the whole thing grew. And quickly there were 750 children. So actually they had 35 or so in each class. Uh, and then that spread to other churches and so on. And the whole idea. Uh, teaching. Teaching all that the Lord has taught us. And churches overseas need teaching. You know, I mentioned the Pentecostal churches in South America. Brilliant, brilliant churches. Wonderful. Full of miracles and excitement and hallelujahs. But biblically appallingly thin. And as a result, many of the young people leave the church because they don't get answers to their questions. And we often say that the Pentecostal churches in South America, because of the lack of Bible teaching, are, are like having a wash basin with the tap or taps full on, but the plug out. So that there's a mass of water coming in, but there's also a lot of water going out at the bottom. And that's true of the Pentecostal churches in South America. Loads of new converts coming in, loads of them. But because of a lack of good teaching, a lot are leaving and either losing their faith altogether or moving to other churches. Sad. They need help in Bible teaching. So this is mission. 
to go and make disciples of all nations. And I want to beg you that from your church, you've got crowds of you, young people and others that are could take early retirement with all their rich experience and so on uh, and get stuck in overseas. Uh, and some of you will go short term, you know, going for a week of your holidays each year and going back and back and back to the same place uh, so that you make uh, relationships and get to know a bit more of what's needed. Uh, some of you will go, I hope, long term and really get stuck in in a place, uh, learn the language and learn the culture and really make long-term relationships that are deeper uh, and really make an impact, have an impact in the situation there. But I want to beg you that from this church, many of you will get deeply involved, vitally involved, in mission, wider mission. Now, you will have gathered from what I've said that a little bit of training won't come amiss. <laughs> I'm frankly shocked by some Christian mission. Terribly amateur. Terribly amateur. I wouldn't go to see a doctor who'd had as little training as some of the missionaries have had. I like my doctors to have had a bit of training, don't you? <laughs> and I like my spiritual doctors. <laughs> I like my people involved in mission to be people who know what they're doing, who've had proper training for it. Get, get training. Now, I'm biased. I've taught for many years at All Nations Christian College. And All Nations is the cross-cultural training place in Britain. There are plenty of other training places for work in Britain, but for cross-cultural mission, cross-cultural witness, All Nations is outstanding. I can say that because I'm not on the full-time staff anymore. <laughs> but it's true. And I, I would seriously recommend courses at All Nations for some of you. You can look it up on the net, All Nations Christian College. But let's get involved. And then comes the promise right at the end of Matthew 28 there. For those who do get involved and make disciples of all nations and baptize them and teach them, surely I am with you, Jesus says. Emmanuel, I'm with you to the end of the age, right through. It's wonderful. So what a promise that comes with that call to mission. Well, may God work in your hearts and send you out. Amen. <laughs>